What a gift it is knowing that that will be the chorus that we are surrounded by for all of eternity, that we exalt thee. What a cracking song. And my goodness, I could have stood there for at least another 15 minutes listening to you guys sing that over us. And uh, in those moments, I often stop singing so as not to ruin things. And I enjoy just to hear and absorb what God's church is proclaiming. Because I cannot carry a tune in a bucket. That's, uh, didn't get any laughs this morning. <laughs> if you've got your Bible, which invariably, if you've got a telephone these days, it's there. We're in Luke chapter 12. The Gospel according to Dr. Luke. Chapter 12, verse 13. And... Onwards, I'm going to read. You can follow along if you like in your own version. Otherwise, you can feel free to shut your eyes and hear the word of the Lord. Someone in the crowd said to him, as in Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to invite, uh, divide the inheritance with me. Obviously, there's two brothers here. And their father is no longer with them and the, the two brothers are perhaps having a bit of a dispute or at least a conversation about their inheritance. One of them may be feeling like he hasn't got what the, he deserves or the other has got more and they invite Jesus into this conversation but Jesus said, man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? And he continued and he said to them, take care... And be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he went on to tell them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? You know, his crops were swelling, it was so abundant, the, the income that he was receiving. And he says, what am I going to do about this problem? He says, I know, I will tear down my barns and I will build even bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, so relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens for goodness sake. He didn't say that bit, but I put it in there. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you, my friend, than the birds? 
And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small as thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all of his glory, in all of his fancy robes and his jewels and his crowns and all of this, not even Solomon in all of his glory was arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, I don't know why you put grass in the oven, but anyway, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches or no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This morning I want to speak on the topic, A Tale of Two Gospels. So if you're taking notes, you can write that at the top of your page and underline it, A Tale of Two Gospels. Before we get into this, I'm going to pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you that even uh, in these moments right now where your word has been read and proclaimed to your church, Father, that your gospel is going forwards, that you are shaping our hearts by your very written word. And Father, we thank you that you give us the gift of your Holy Spirit to cause your word to come alive in our hearts. And Father, I pray that as we dive deeper into your word and as we look at the challenges of life that are presented before us, Lord, that we would see you more clearly, that we'd be able to follow you more fully, and that we would fall more in love with Jesus because of what you have done for us. In your precious name, amen. So verse 13 to 21, this telling of this parable of the rich fool, I've entitled the gospel of more. And Jesus begins this parable by creating for us a figurative person as a way of highlighting a kingdom truth that is bare naked before our very eyes. And to quote Jesus, that true life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he goes on to tell us a story about this rich guy whose farm was very fruitful and in turn very profitable. And we read that in this swelling abundance and wealth that he was accumulating, that instead of devising ways that he could share his abundance or be generous with abundance or use his wealth for other means, he decided that he would need to build bigger barns to make capacity and space for the forthcoming wealth that he was seeing ahead and experiencing now. And so he took to his current barns, his current storage facilities with hammer and with saw, and he, along with their pithy ability to hold his amassing wealth, he destroyed them. 
And then he went about pegging, pegging out a bigger site. And well, if this is what's coming in, I'm going to need to build something much larger. And he set about the task of doing so. He laid the foundations and he built the frames and he put the roof on and he clad it with nice cladding and he painted it and he put a garden and a little rocking chair on the front porch of his storehouse and he sat back at the end of a hard day's work and he made himself a cool drink, a lemonade and he reached for the cheese and bickies, the aged cheddar and the fancy camembert and he even went and got those fancy biscuits that Woolies charge far too much for that have got fruit and nuts and all of that and he sat back and he went, oh, how's the serenity? Soul, look at what you have done. He was so impressed with himself. But Jesus of this man says, you fool. Now this parable is Jesus' way of highlighting a gospel that is in fact no gospel at all. And that is the gospel of more. And the highest claim of the gospel of more is that the more you have, the happier you will be. It's the, if only I had that, and whatever the that is, then I will be happier. I mean, have you experienced this before? Where you have caught yourself in this pattern of thinking, if only I had, insert whatever it is, thing, experience, you name it, then I will be happier. I mean, it could be, if I had the freshest tech, then I'll be happier. And my GoPro died recently, and I love to film stuff in the water. And now I'm like, man, if only I had the latest GoPro, then my life would be so much better. If only I had the new car, life would be so much better. And don't get me wrong, my 23-year-old something car is fantastic. But when I pull up to the lights next to somebody and they want to say hello... They push the button and their window goes down. I've got to reach across to the other side awkwardly and wind it, one, one sec, wind it down and wind it back up. If only the new car, then I'd be happier. Maybe it's the bigger house. Maybe if it's the latest release, then I'll be happier or the latest upgrade. Maybe if I had the thing that makes them seem so happy, then I will be happy. Maybe if... You could just have that really well-placed product in your favourite TV show, then you will be happy. We've just been through all the seasons of Ted Lasso, and I've seen so many matching tracksuits and cool visors. And I'm like, man, if only I could be like Ted, then I would be happy. You know, I open up the Audi catalogue every now and again, and I am just, I am so incredibly sucked in by the cheapness of the tools. I love a good tool. And I go in, I see that their, their saws and their bits, it's like 50 bucks. And I'm going, yeah, should I, shouldn't I? And I've only ever fallen for the Audi catalogue once. The repeating ad for the thing you definitely don't need that you keep seeing in your social media feed. Exhibit A, and I haven't got my budgies on, by the way. This is the only product 
I have ever bought off Instagram. My sonny's with inbuilt visor. I fell for the trap. It kept appearing in my thing. And I kept seeing this really good looking guy thinking, man, if only I could look like that, then life would be complete. <laughs> Am I not? Did... I had someone saying to me yesterday that they need to get a pair. So, you know, I'm contributing to the world in some way. I don't know. French sociologist Jean Baudrillard has made the point that in the Western world, materialism has become the new dominant system of meaning, and he argues that atheism hasn't replaced cultural Christianity. Shopping has. And downstream of this all-too-accurate cultural assessment is that we now get our meaning in life from what we consume. We even get our identity from the things that we buy or perhaps sell. And John Mark Comer, whose book we've kind of been parked up in for about six weeks, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, hence our title, Unhurried, being the quest that we are on, he says this, most of us would never admit it. But a lot of us believe the saying, I am what I buy. Or more realistically, I am what I wear. Or the brand of my phone, or the car I drive, or the neighborhood I live in, or the gadget I flaunt. For a lot of people, things aren't just things, they are identities. I caught up with some old mates the other week and the conversation came to pay rises and careers, and cars. And as I listened to the conversation, it was all but impossible to not see how deeply connected pay rises, careers, and cars were to a sense of identity that some in our conversation had. That somehow the size of the motor, the girth of the wheels, the comfort of the seat, the percentage of the pay rise, the climbing of the next rung on the company ladder, somehow madeth the man. And Comer says that shopping is now the number one leisure activity in America. And I went to Westfield this week, I think for the first time this year, praise the Lord. And I would say this isn't just an American thing, but very much an Australian thing that shopping is now the number one leisure activity in our nation, usurping the place of previously held by religion. Amazon.com is the new temple. The visa statement is the new altar. Double-clicking is the new liturgy. And lifestyle bloggers are the priests and priestesses. Money is the new God. Somehow, this culture or gospel of more has gotten to the point where the owning and accumulation of more and more stuff is not just a marker of success, but it is becoming a determinator of who we are. It's confronting to sit with because I think if I sat with the truth of this and the culture that surrounds us, it can be easy for me to go, that's not me. That's everyone else out there in the world. 
who is on the rush and hurry train of accumulation and more and buying into this gospel of more being the answer to happiness and to joy and to fulfillment. But the truth is I'm a part of this culture as much as you are. And this gospel, it's an interesting one because identity found in things is a false identity at best. And at worst, identity found in things is a comprehensive burglary of your soul. And this gospel of more has been a century or so in the making. And I say making for a very good reason. We haven't just by happenstance drifted our way into this way of being. We haven't accidentally stumbled into a consumeristic, materialistic life shaped by the gospel of more. And now, listen, there's a lot to be thankful for that we've imported from America, like the light bulb and the sewing machine and the steamboat, and perhaps even hot dogs and burgers. I went to a place called Five Guys Burgers this week. Anyone been there before? It's in town. Came from America. Mmm, delicious. <laughs> However, the unrelenting pursuit of more and the worship of things is not one that we can say we're grateful for importing. And Comer explains this. In, after World War I, the tycoons of big business, the shadow politicians of D.C. and the madmen of New York City conspired to remake the American economy. Their agenda, he says, to create an entire economy and with it a culture out of consumerism, to get the children of a bunch of simple farmers to spend their time and money buying up the latest thing hot off the assembly line. It was the thingification of American society. He notes one Wall Street banker said this, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained. I mean, this is how intentional this culture has been created that we have inherited. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. To which he says, this sounds like an evil genius from an Orwellian sci-fi movie, but this was written by Paul Mazur from the Lehman Brothers. One of the financial architects of the economy that we now live in. Another pioneer of industrial relations called this plan the new economic gospel of consumption. To which we ought to pay attention to the word gospel. If I sit and I think about the core tenets of the gospel, of more, they, they might be these, that number one, we are created to be individual consumers. That would be a tenant of the gospel of more. That we are nothing more than a consumer in this world, no longer a citizen of our world, but a consumer of our world. The second one might be that we are meant to be passive, that we just throw our hands in the air and go, well, this is how the world is, let's just get on board. A removal of our agency over the culture we find ourselves in. And maybe number three, the third tenet of the gospel of more would be our sole duty is then just to consume more. Just to keep feeding what is being brought off the machine line. 
And all these three tenets speak to are our identity, our agency, and our purpose. But my question is, what does placing our faith in the gospel of more result in? Jeff Kaplan is a professor of philosophy at the University of North Carolina. He said it this way, We have impoverished our human communities with a form of materialism that leaves us in relative isolation from family, friends and neighbours. We simply don't have time for them. Unlike our great-grandparents who passed the time, we spend it. An outside observer might conclude that we are in the grip of some strange curse, like a modern-day King Midas whose touch turned everything into a product built around a microchip. Walter Brueggemann, wonderful theologian, offers this analysis of the gospel of more, which is, this is painting a picture of the problem. If we want to follow the sign of the times... We have to look at how our core economic beliefs have produced a culture that makes poverty, violence, ill health and fragile economic systems seem inevitable. Economic systems based on competition, on scarcity and acquisitiveness, otherwise greed, have become more than a question of economics. They have become the kingdom within which we dwell. The way of thinking invades our social order our ways of being together and what we value. This culture replicates the kingdom of ancient Egypt, Pharaoh's kingdom, which Daz spoke so sharply to the other week. It produces a consumer culture that centralizes wealth and power and leaves the rest wanting what the beneficiaries of the system have. And pointedly, John Mark Comer summarizes and says, the wait is over. The verdict is in. Time is telling of the catastrophic damage that materialism is doing to the soul of our society. This lie we all believe is wreaking havoc on our emotional health and our spiritual lives. One cultural commentator called it affluenza. It's like a disease promising to make us happy for $49.99, while it's in fact a man in the shadows pulling our strings and stealing our money and with it our joy. The good news of the gospel of more is that by placing your faith in it, you too can be more isolated, emotionally unhealthy, spiritually adrift, Time poor, more machine than man or woman, more defeated, more socially fractured, more greedy, a contributor to injustice and having had not only your money stolen, but your joy as well. I mean, this is why Jesus in Luke 12 is so clear in his message. Take care. I mean, th this is for you and I as we open our phones, as we watch TV, as we interact with the marketing swirl that is always around us, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, wishing that you could have that thing 
or if you had that thing, you'd be more happy. Take care and be on your guard for one's life does not consist in the abundance of your stuff. Jesus foreknew that the insatiable desire for more and the lies we've been told would be a heavy foot on the accelerator of our lives, adding more hurry than we bargained for. And his teaching and his way of life are in fact the answer and the antidote and the way to finding the true life that Jesus spoke about. And perhaps some of the questions that John Mark Comer asked himself at a particular point in time are worth us asking ourselves. What if the formula of more stuff equals more happiness is bad maths? What if more stuff just equals more stress? More hours at the office, more debt, more years working in a job you don't feel called to, more time wasted cleaning and maintaining and fixing and playing with and organising and reorganising and updating all that junk you don't even need. What if more stuff actually equals less of what matters most? Less time, less financial freedom, less generosity, which according to Jesus is where the real joy is. Less peace as we hurry our way through the shopping parking lot. Less focus on what life is actually about. Less mental real estate for creativity. Less relationships. Less margin. Less prayer. Less of what we actually ache for. What if we were to reject our culture's messaging as a half-truth at best, if not a full-on lie, and live into another message? What if we lived into another gospel? Which brings us to the second part of Luke 12, which we would be very familiar with the opening statement, do not be anxious about tomorrow. And after Jesus' cautionary tale about the rich young man, he turns to his disciples and he says to them, don't be anxious about stuff. Don't be anxious about what to wear. Don't be anxious about what to eat. He pleads the case of God's faithfulness in caring for and providing for the needs of his creation. He appeals to the truth that if God is good enough to give the flowers of the field something to wear and the ravens of the sky something to eat, then how much more, O oh child of him who loves you so dearly, will he provide for you? I mean, the freedom we can think we can attain through the accumulation of more pales in comparison to walking in the freedom of an intimate relationship with the God who has proven time and time again to provide. God's provision is not determined by your cleverness. God's provision in your life is not determined by your job. God's provision in your life is not determined by your race, your nationality, your family of origin. In fact, it has absolutely nothing to do with you. And this is the gospel of love. We have the gospel of more 
And feel free, by all means, pursue it. But be warned of what Jesus said, you fool. But here we have before us the gospel of love. He does not love you on account of your stuff. He does not love you on account of what you own. He does not love you based on the size of your retirement fund or your share portfolio. He does not love you on account of your ability to provide for your family. He does not love you on account of your job. He does not love you on account of how much you give to the poor or whether you tithe to his church. Friend, it is in me this morning to remind you that you have a God in heaven who loves you so much that he gave everything that you would know the deepest, most satisfying, most freeing love and life that you could ever know. And maybe you've been brought along here today by a well-meaning, slightly annoying friend who loves Jesus, or maybe just because you're here every week. Maybe you've never encountered the truth of God's unconditional love, or whether you are versed, well-versed in how much God loves you regardless. Either way, these 30 seconds are for all of us. That Jesus is God's Son who came from heaven to earth, fully God, fully man, born of a virgin. And he lived this life where there was no sin in him, a perfect life, even his closest and best friends said that of him. There was no sin in him at all. He lived perfectly like nobody else. And he went to a cross. And on the cross, he took my sin and he took your sin. He took all of the awful things that have been done to you. And he took all of the awful things that have been done to me. And he finished with them once and for all. He said, it's paid. It's finished. God's wrath has moved on and he has given us his righteousness. Then after death, he rose again to life, both bodily and physically on the third day. And then shortly after that, he sent us his Holy Spirit to his people and then he ascended into heaven. And he's going to come back one day, physically and bodily, to make all things right in this world once and for all. And friends, this is the gospel of love. That you are loved because he first loved you, not because you have all the stuff you have or don't have. He loves you not because of your achievement or your attainment, not because you've made for yourself a name or a reputation or a career or a well-fluffed nest. He loves you because you are his. You are far more of value and worth than the sparrow that flies through the air or the flower that pops up from the ground. And if in his faithfulness and his goodness and his grace and his love would feed the bird and give an amazing outfit to the flower, how much more then can we place our trust and our faith in the God 
and the gospel of love. And this is the simple gospel, not us, but Him. By His grace and not by our effort, by His mercy and not our material things. And truly coming to terms with God's wildly, unconditional, unlimited, unbounding, relentless love for you is not just the beginning of living a life of freedom, but it is the middle and the end of living a life of freedom, of peace, of joy and delight. And though even for those who, who may know his love so well and so deeply, the gnarly claws of consumerism can still clasp onto us like a ravenous eagle snatching a rabbit from a hillside. And it can hold us. Even though we know Jesus, even though we know truth, even though we know the gospel of grace and of love, still yet we find ourselves at times easily in the grips as I've only got to open my phone and there I feel it, the grips of this consumeristic world latching its talons into my life. How can we get off the merry-go-round of acquiring more? And the question is, what strategies perhaps or practices can we employ to live unhitched from the hurriedness of living under the spell of the gospel of more? To which John Mark Comer would introduce us to the practice of simplicity. And we keep saying practice because it's not the, I've got it sorted simplicity, it's the practice of simplicity. And a practice is something that we practice. And we can start in small ways, ways that um, maybe cause us to step out of our comfort zone and to confront things, but maybe just a small step. And maybe there's just a really small step that God is inviting you toward, taking, into live a life of greater simplicity, where those claws and talons of consumerism are perhaps one by one torn out of your flesh, that we can walk into greater freedom. And Comer says that the goal of simplicity isn't just to declutter your closet or your garage, but to declutter your life, to clear away the myriad of distractions that ratchet up our anxiety, that feed us an endless stream of mind-numbing drivel and anaesthetize us to what really matters. The goal here is to live with a high degree of intentionality around what matters most, which for those of us who apprentice under Jesus, is Jesus himself and his kingdom. And like all of our spiritual practices and spiritual disciplines, this is an exercise in knowing and practicing the way of Jesus. And it can be observed from just about any angle you look at Jesus' life, that simplicity is a practice that we can see in him. That he was a man of great simplicity, not foregoing beautiful things, not foregoing being invited to and enjoying delicious wine and, and meals at friends' houses, not foregoing being in the presence of people of great wealth who would um, host him, 
not without being in the community of people who funded his missionary exploits. I mean, Jesus, he knew wealth and he was surrounded by wealth and he was part of being a receiver of wealth. He was a beneficiary of wealth. He was someone who engaged in the aristocratic society in order to redeem it, but didn't allow it to become the thing that dictated its terms to him. He was able to both live in the simplicity of being able to observe and receive beauty without being, having his life hijacked by stuff. In reflecting on Jesus' life, Richard Foster noted, he was a carefree concern for possessions is what marks a life in the kingdom. And Jesus put on this display carefree, unconcerned, so incredibly well. And to follow Jesus especially in our Western world, is to live in the tension between grateful, happy enjoyment of nice, beautiful things and simplicity. And when in doubt, to err on the side of generous, simple living. I'm not going to go into all 12, but John Mark Comer gives 12 ways to practice simplicity. Some of them I think are a little bit Yeah, whatever. Take him or leave him. Sorry if he's ever listening to this podcast, which he probably never will. I'm going to give you, in very brief form, nine ways to practice simplicity. And I say brief. They are very brief. There's only a very small tag of commentary added to each one, and then we finish. Number one, before you buy something, ask yourself, what is the true cost of this item? What is the true cost of this item? I follow a, a blog by a guy called Seth Godin. He's a, he's a marketing guru and he wrote a post called Price Versus Cost. And I'll read it verbatim. He says, price is a simple number, as in how much money do I need to hand to you to get this thing? Cost is more relevant, more real and more complicated. Cost is what I have to give up to get this. Cost is how much to feed it, to take care of it, to maintain it, and to troubleshoot it. Cost is my lack of focus and my cost of storage. Cost is the externalities, the effluent, and the side effects. Just about every time, cost matters more than price, and shopping for price is a trap. When you see a little dangly price tag that says $90, that's the price. But are you willing to ask yourself, what is the cost? Is this going to cost me my time? If so, what is that time? Are you prepared to make that decision? Because with the decision to pay a price comes an even bigger decision to wear a cost. What is the true cost of this item? Ask yourself that before you buy something. Number two, never impulse buy. For me, this sounds like never enter a fishing tackle store or Bunnings. (laughs) I love love a good impulse buy. I shouldn't. Because it's amazing how much money we blow in the spur of the moment. Comer offers us this tip. As a general rule, when you see an item you want, just sit on it for a while. The larger the item, the longer you should wait. Think over it. Give your rational mind time to catch up with your irrational flesh. Dave, listen. Pray over it. Remember, God isn't against stuff. 
He made the world for you to enjoy and it's beautiful. But if a purchase doesn't have his blessing on it, do you really want it in your life? You'll be shocked at how good it feels to not buy something. Number three, when you do buy, opt for fewer, better things. When you do buy, opt for fewer and better things. This is the buy once, cry once principle. Parting with maybe more money than what you might have wanted to on something that is better will probably save you a whole lot more in the long run. Because often in an attempt to save money, we end up buying a lot of cheaply and often unjustly made items instead of living without for a while and then buying a quality item that will last. Buy it once is a great motto to live by. If you can't afford the high-end version, consider buying used. Either way, in the end, you'll save money. Buy once, cry once. Number four, get in the habit of giving things away. Remember, Jesus on the subject of generosity, it is more blessed than it is to receive. Get into the habit of giving away. Number five, when you can, share. When you can, share. One early church father said of the church, we hold everything in common except our wives. Look out for where you can borrow instead of buy. If you need that tool to do the job at home, maybe somebody else has that tool you could use. I mean, insert whatever you like into that. Where you can, share. Number six, live by a budget. And a budget is far more than a way to stay out of debt, as vital as that is. A budget is to your money what a schedule is to your time. It's a way to make sure that your treasure is going to the right place and not getting squandered. Living by a budget is a good idea to practice simplicity. Number seven, cultivate a deep appreciation for creation. And last I checked, oxygen, as John Mark Comer says, is still free. And the National Park is only 15 minutes that direction and the beach even closer this way. Creation, especially places that are yet untouched by civilization, has the potential to wake us up to our Creator in ways that few things ever can. It invokes in us wonder and awe. And it's said if materialism despiritualizes us, the material world itself has the opposite effect it re spiritualizes our souls. Let's fall in love with God's creation as a way for satisfaction in our lives over and over again. Number eight, cultivate a deep appreciation for the simple pleasures. Stop long enough to appreciate the simple things, a cup of coffee or tea in the morning, a home-cooked meal with family, riding your bike to work. These experiences usually cost very little, yet they pay huge dividends in happiness. An evening stroll, every sunrise, every good conversation with an old friend is a portal to a potential grateful enjoyment joyful enjoyment of god's life in the world and this posture says less about our income and more about our relationship to time and the kind of attention we give to god and the goodness of his world lastly lead a cheerful happy revolt against the spirit of materialism 
And it was said of St. Francis and his band of followers that they led a cheerful, happy revolt against the spirit of materialism. They saw spreading Jesus' message of simplicity as one and the same with spreading his message of joy. You don't have to be grouchy about it or all uptight over how many socks you own. Just smile, relax, and let joy be your weapon in the fight. Now we often hear less is better. But what if less is better? This is the message that our culture so desperately needs to hear. So in closing, and I'll invite Ali and guys back up, that as John Mark Comer says, in all of this, there is no silver bullet. Simplicity isn't the answer, but it is an answer. In, In the same way that... Embracing the Sabbath in our lives isn't the answer to an unhurried life, it's an answer. In the same way that practicing silence and solitude is not the answer, it's an answer. Next week we'll look at the practice of slowing, it's not the answer, it's an answer. This, this not just concept but way of life of living simply as Jesus lived is not the answer but an answer. Even an easy one, but you've got to choose. I like John Mark Comer's simplicity. Just get rid of the crap you don't need. <laughs> We've got a council cleanup coming up at our house. Feel free to drop it off. No, don't do that because they won't take it. We're really excited. Just get rid of the crap you don't need. But it's not a cheap answer, and ironically, it will cost you. Dallas Willard here pointed out the cost of discipleship is high, but the cost of non discipleship is even higher. The cost to make the decision to simplify your life is a costly one. It will mean confronting some of the attitudes and behaviours that we have towards things. But the cost of not doing that and the cost of living in this gospel of more rather than the gospel of love, that's even higher. It'll cost you money and time and a life of justice and the gift of a clean conscience and time for prayer and an unrushed soul and above all life that is truly life. Let's stand together. Let's invite God into this moment as we respond to his word and as we worship. That perhaps asking the question, God, how are you asking me to practice simplicity? It might be something really small, it might be something really big. Whatever it is, let's invite God to give us the courage to make the choice to not live in the way of the world, but to live by the gospel of love. Father, I pray in these moments as we come to the end of our time together this morning, Father, that that by your grace you would meet us. Father, that we would feel the empowering of your Holy Spirit to make good decisions and wise decisions and courageous decisions. Father, when we think about our place in the world and how we interact with the culture at large around us, Father, I pray that we would take on what we say we are and who we say as a church, that we are inspired by your love to live differently. Father, we would not be subscribers to the gospel of more, finding our value, worth and love in things. 
But Father, we would be your kids who relish in the truth that you have done everything for us. That it is not in our strength or in our might, not in our cleverness or in our bank accounts or in the things that we own that give us worth. But only that we are children loved by you. And that you have gone, you have moved heaven and earth and given us your son. That we would know that truth and know it well. That you have given yourself for us. That we would know true life. So Holy Spirit, do a work in us this morning. Show us, Lord, where we need to simplify that we would be able to love you and love others more fully. Where we can be more present to you and more present to others more completely. Where we can love our world and our neighbor and our family and our friends more wholly because we are living simple lives. So Father, speak to us in just this moment and in the ones to come. In Jesus' name. Amen.